We uh, have just started over the last couple weeks a series that we've entitled Unfinished, a study from the book of Acts. And we're using the book of Acts as a model of how ministry in the church needs to be done. This is a biography of how God's Spirit falls on a group of people. And even though they are uh, nothing famous and nothing extravagant about these people when the Holy Spirit falls upon them, God would use this ordinary group of people to change the world, and to change the world amidst great obstacles, to change the world against great frailties that they had. Uh, They would change the world even though the opposition of the government and the world was against them. And what we need to recognize and know is that while they were successful in their day, uh, the job isn't done. The job of the church is still left unfinished, and it will not be finished until the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we've got a work to do. And now we pick up the mantle as broken and as frailed people, as people who are not altogether all that famous or or extraordinary. But we pray for the same thing that they prayed, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon us in a new and real way so that we might go out and boldly profess and tell the world about our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might change the world as well. You see, we've started this study, and, and we've gotten already a long way. In Acts chapter 1, we have learned that uh, this book is written as a, a second volume of the work that Jesus did. Luke had written the first one, the Gospel of Luke, and he had talked about all that Jesus had taught about and all that Jesus had done. But now the second book is written for his friend Theophilus. And he writes this and he's saying, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. I'm going to tell you what now is transpiring in the hearts of the people some 30 years after Jesus had died and been buried and risen from the grave. Now what impact was being had in the church that he had started? And we've already seen a lot so far. In Acts chapter 1, we've seen uh, Jesus giving his final commands and words to his disciples. We've seen Jesus take them to a a high place. and, And then all of a sudden, he had talked about it for a long time, but they didn't get it. Jesus ascended in all radiance and brilliance. And he ascended into heaven. And he is, we are told that the disciples heard from angels telling them that Jesus is coming back and he will come back the same way that he left this earth. Blameless and pure and radiant and the king of kings and as the Lord of lords and as the triumphant one who has destroyed his enemies and made his enemies a footstool. That which the psalmist prophesied about hundreds of years in advance. This would empower the disciples in a new way. Yes, it would be scary. Their friend, their mentor, their teacher, their Messiah was now gone. But God had promised, Jesus had promised in his day that one that was even greater than he in the sense of what he would be able to do through the people was about to come. But they would have to wait So they are told to wait patiently in Jerusalem, and we are told that now 120 are gathered. They do some business, as we learned about uh, last week. Uh, They choose a new disciple to take the place of Judas. Uh, They talk about how Judas would end his life, 
And, and no doubt during that time they grieved and they, and they were bewildered and they wondered, when, when is Jesus going to come back? Is it one of those things that he'll be gone for a little bit and then come on back? And will the kingdom come back and will it be restored? And yet they waited and they waited. The Bible tells us that 40 days Jesus walked with the disciples and then ascended. And today we're going to hear that now after a span of 10 days after his ascension, that something amazing is going to happen. That in their waiting, Jesus was going to knock their socks off with the giving of the Holy Spirit. We find our passage this morning in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and we'll go through, uh, through to verse 13. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Let me read our passage before us. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthenians and Medes, Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, great town by the way, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and even visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, even the Cretans and the Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of transition in our church. As you see uh, in a lot of newspaper articles, uh, Illinois is losing lots of people. And as a church, we have had to say goodbye to so many wonderful people because of job transitions and job changes that have taken them out of the state. And one of the questions that will inevitably be asked to one of the staff members is, is here, we're moving to this locale. Could you help us find a new church? Could you help us find a church that uh, would parallel some of the things that Village Bible Church is all about, doctrine and, and maybe direction and vision that they have? And with the help of the internet, we can learn a lot about the churches in a particular area, but what inevitably becomes a problem is, is we'll find out the location of where uh, the people are moving to, and we'll type in churches in the Google search, and the churches will all be populated on the map. And the question is, there are dozens of churches, just as there are in the Fox Valley area, so they are in every locale, dozens of churches. And the question is, what makes a good church? What uh, allows a church to be the kind of church that 
people are changed in. What is the kind of church that God would want us to be a part of? The, the problem that we have here in America, though, is that we look at churches with the wrong lens. We look at church through our lens instead of God's lens. We look at church and, and we try to figure out, well, what can this church do for me? Instead of asking the question, what is this church doing for God? We want to know, will we applaud what this church is doing because we like this program or their state-of-the-art facilities or their dynamic staff? Instead of asking the question, does God like what he sees in what they are doing? You see, we have become, as I shared a couple weeks ago, consumers instead of committed followers of the glory and honor and ministry of God. Uh, this kind of behavior summed up in a video that I'd like to show. So turn your attentions to the video screen and let's find out how we look for churches this day. Nick and Molly just moved to the city and can't agree on what they want. They are young and energetic and looking for a new church home. We'll take some personality tests, tour the sites, ask some questions, and based on taste, experience, and location, we'll find them the perfect congregation. I'm Corey Clark and welcome to Church Hunters. We're so excited to find a church. We just started dating. Um, with the churches we go to now, just not, like for us, just not really doing it for us, you know? Right. I, I go to a satellite campus. I just find it hard to connect emotionally with a video screen. It's just... Okay, you cried during Cake Boss. So, like, we've been doing a lot of services online, a lot of podcasts. There are a lot of preachers we do like. Really good, but we want, we want serious yet funny. Yeah, like commanding of the stage yet relatable, you mm-hmm. know? We're more looking for uh, the humor of Andy Stanley with the body of Stephen Furtick. Hey, guys. What's happening? I'm Corey. Good to see you. My name's Nick. This hey, is Molly. Molly. Hey, guys. Welcome to Church Hunters. This is your first church. This is Creekside First Baptist. So while it is traditional, it's still pretty current. Just okay. this year, the pastor started untucking his shirts. Oh, Ooh, wow. that's good. Good deal. He does dress his age, though, so don't worry. He's past the Osteen suit phase, but he hasn't gone full Giglio yet. Okay, oh. so there's holes in the knees or no? Well, it's frayed, but no holes. Frayed, oh. no. Okay, got it. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So, hey, let me show you around. Okay, right, let's Come on. do it. I do love this lobby. It's a great lobby. You know, yeah. it's not too big, not too small. Yeah. Should be enough room to catch up, chat with your friends. But here's a great thing. There's a bunch of side exits, so if you need to leave early and catch the game, you can do that. Got it. Yes. Honestly, right up front, uh, didn't love the name. No. First Baptist? Who names a church that anymore? I just... Not these days. We're looking for like a Thrive Church, maybe Relevant Church, I don't know, Radiant Church, something. This is the soundboard they use here. Now remember, it's pretty traditional here. So, when Sunday comes around, they turn it way down low. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> but the one knock on this church, they still use the child care numbering system on the screens. Ooh, uh, for the yeah. Yep. Or as the moms like to call it, the sanctuary walk of shame. Yeah. <laughs> the Sunday morning experience was just a little too traditional for, for us. For us. I mean, the pastor's main point, 157 characters. I can't tweet that. I really think you guys are going to love this place. I like we it. We do. We like Feels it. Great. Yeah. You know, it's diverse, but it's not like too diverse, you know? Scripture-heavy sermons? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. What about, uh, is it community-oriented? Absolutely. Great. Women in ministry? The parking situation, you guys got to see it. Super rare nowadays. Come with me. There's like a a maybe for when my parents come into town for a church for Christmas. 
Easter type of church. Like a holiday Holidays. type church. One of the main reasons that I love this church for you guys is that on your personality test, Molly, you scored high in service and hospitality. Oh, babe. And there's wow. a great welcome team you could join. Perfect. Okay. And then Nick, you scored really high in need for accountability. Wow. And the men's groups here are amazing. You just, you just can put that out there? Hey, just God like knows that. your heart, okay? On the next episode of Church Hunters. I think you're really going to love this place. They take relevance to a whole new level. This church identifies as inter-denon-denominational. This pastor speaks out of a brand new translation. It's the Tumblr Bible. Well, hopefully a little satire helps you to recognize how we here in America approach churches. And I got to be honest with you, there's probably, if we're honest with ourselves, some truth to what we've just seen. That, that we look at the church and we say, is this church doing something effective? And if you notice, a lot of it had to do with them. A lot of it had to do with their preferences and their desires. And while those aren't bad, we're going to learn that the book of Acts was not about preferences. It wasn't about all kinds of great facilities and all kinds of awesome staff members and all kinds of great programs. In fact, they met in each other's homes and they just enjoyed the favor of God. And God in that very simplistic and simple church found itself being the change agent to the world. And what we want to look at this morning is we want to get away from that and we want to get closer to this. What does the Bible say that we should be looking for in a church? Whether we move away into a new community or right here at Village Bible Church, how do we become the church that God wants us to be? I see four characteristics this morning from our text that are very, very important. Now, last week, Pastor Steve spent a lot of his time uh, in his message talking about the gift and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So he's laid the groundwork for uh, the passage that is before me. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the net result of the Holy Spirit's ministry and impact. He has, he's going to come. He's going to fill his people. Now, what is the church going to do now that they are filled with the promise of the Holy Spirit? And so let's set the record uh, this morning or set the setting, if you will, uh, with what's going on. As we turn into uh, Acts chapter 2, we see that they are in Jerusalem. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. And, and here they find themselves waiting on the Lord, waiting for what the Lord said what he was going to do. Now, it's a busy time in Jerusalem. Passover now is about seven weeks past and a new celebration is coming. This new celebration would take place in our calendar year between uh, mid-May and June. And so they find themselves in the springtime, if you will, and all kinds of people have come to Jerusalem for a feast. It was called the Feast of Weeks. It was called the Feast of the Harvest. And it's mentioned five times in the first five books of the Bible. In fact, in Exodus 23, 24, Leviticus 16, Numbers 28, and Deuteronomy 16, it is a celebration of the beginning of the harvest. Now, there were two harvests in Palestine at the time, a spring harvest and a fall harvest, because they didn't have the crazy winters that we have, and so they could be planting and reaping all year long. And so this festival of the weeks was a celebration of the first harvest of the year. 
That which was true agriculturally is about to become true spiritually. God is going to unleash his spirit on the church, and he is about to create a celebratory feeling amongst the people because the harvest is about to begin. And what is going to take place is, as Jesus said, there need to be laborers in the harvest, and he was going to send out people to be the laborers in his fields to bring in the harvest. Now, Pentecost was the celebration of that early harvest and a celebration of what was going to come. But in order for the church to uh, receive the blessings and benefits that would come of being close to God, they would have to be sent out to do ministry. And that ministry would be done not only internally but externally as well. And there are four characteristics this morning that we need to look at if we want to be a Pentecost kind of church. Number one, I want you to notice this morning that if we want to be a church that God is looking for, we need to be a community-loving people, a community-loving people. That Pentecost Sunday was a day of waiting for the disciples. Jesus was gone, and the days were beginning to pile up. Ten days now had passed. What was Jesus going to do next? God had given them a gift, The gift in their waiting was the gift of community. Now, I want you to remember that God does not want us in isolation. In fact, if we learn anything from the disciples, we learn this truth. In isolation, we fall. The disciples, when Jesus is arrested, all ran off their own way. They didn't stay together. They ran off as individuals. And we see them from their own disappointment in themselves, their failure upon failure, which is characterized in two guys in particular, the failure of Judas and the failure of Peter. And so we learn that as individuals, when we do the Christian life on our own, we run the risk of falling But now Jesus has said, listen, I want you all together. I want you all in one place. Why? Because when you're together, you don't fall, you stand tall. And and this is something as, as a church we need to remember. Because in America, we are told, do it by yourselves. Do it for yourselves. And, and, and rugged individualism is a characteristic of the American life. But the Christian life, Jesus tells us, has nothing to do with the individual. It has all to do with being together with one another. So they are waiting together, the text tells us. They are waiting together patiently. They are obeying what the scriptures say. Now now go back to chapter one, verses 12 through 15. It says that after the ascension, they've seen this great and marvelous uh, ascension take place. The Jesus who was walking and talking with them now has been taken up to heaven. What a glorious and awesome sight that must have been. And so they're coming back home And they must have been rejoicing in all that God had done. Probably something that Jesus would return in a day or so. And little did they know now 2,000 years later we would still be waiting on the Lord. I want you to know something about the church. The church is always awaiting people. They waited on the day of Pentecost for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit has come. And now the church, you and I, we wait on the coming of our Lord. And so we're always in the state of waiting, and God has commanded us to watch and to pray for his coming, but never to stop doing the ministry that we've been called to do. And so now we see the disciples. Uh, They have come from the mount uh, called Olivet, 
It was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath journey away, verse 13 says, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, and it lists the disciples. And then it says, all of these were in one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And so we've got this growing group of people. We're told in verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all 120. So we've got 120 people, the disciples, the 11 disciples now, Matthias the 12. We've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the family of Jesus there. But now we have 120 now close associates of Jesus. And we know the Bible talks about them, probably the two men that were on their way to Emmaus, probably some of the women that Jesus had ministered to during his time on earth. We have uh, people probably like Nicodemus, probably Joseph of Arimathea, uh, maybe even the centurion who said when he saw Jesus, truly this was the son of God. And so we have all these different disciples from all different backgrounds coming in and waiting on the coming, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, we are told that they lived in together in one accord, that they were unified. And one of the things as a church that we need to long for, and that if you ever have to leave this place, you should be looking for, is the unity of the body. The unity of the body and the way that a church becomes unified is that they start sharing things together. I want you to notice three things that I see in the scriptures that these people share together. Number one, experiences. They shared experiences together. One of the ways that you create community is by doing life together. And the disciples had. The disciples had experienced the highs and lows of life. No doubt they were all grieving the loss of their friend Judas, bewildered by why he would betray them, and struggling with that reality. They no doubt were dealing with their own failures and flaws of faltering when Jesus commanded them to stay close. They had experienced some great things together. They'd experienced the resurrection. Now they'd experienced eating and and drinking with the risen Savior and Lord, touching him and, and recognizing the reality that he truly was raised from the dead. And now they had the experience of of seeing Jesus being lifted high and ascending to heaven and hearing from angelic individuals that told them that Jesus was going to come back. You see, Community is where we share the good times and the bad times together. And these disciples had done that. Now they're in the upper room and they're communing together, living life together and sharing and discussing and crying and and laughing about how they've experienced life knowing that they had done that together. Shared experiences is where community is found. Number two, I want you to notice shared exercises shared exercises. Jesus had given uh, the disciples a command. He hadn't given Peter a command or James or John a command. He hadn't given his mother a command. He gave his disciples a command. I want you to wait patiently in Jerusalem. And I want you to go anywhere because for you, not as individuals, but for you, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and I want you together in one place 
when that Holy Spirit comes. I want to confirm through all of you, 120, as witnesses of what I'm about to do. And so the people of God, the church, not only had experienced life together, but they had also experienced what it meant to live the Christian life together. They, they understood that Jesus had called us all to certain things. And now they were going out and they were doing those things. We have one job description as Christians, and that is to glorify and magnify the name of Jesus, both in word and deed to a lost world. And so they know their job, and so they are busy doing the work. We notice that one of the ways that they do that is they're all in one accord devoting themselves to prayer. So they're praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They're praying that they would remain strong. They're praying that they would remain obedient. They're praying, asking God, no doubt, the questions of what is next. They shared community together because they shared the same experiences. Finally, we see that they shared the same expectation, the same expectations. What were they expecting? They had all heard together that Jesus said, I'm going to be taken into heaven, and I'm going to send you a helper. And then that helper is going to come, and he's going to lead you in all truth. He's going to guide you, and he's going to illuminate the world of all that I've said. He's going to convict the world of their sin. And, and this Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to change the ball game, if you will. And then one day, when the Holy Spirit's work is done, Jesus told them, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to take you. Remember in John chapter 14, he tells the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you so your hearts don't need to be troubled. And so this group of people are living in life's community, and they're doing life together, sharing the experiences of life, doing what Jesus had told them to do, uh, doing it in community with one another, using their gifts to further the kingdom of God and to edify the saints. And they have the expectation that Jesus is ascended into heaven and he's going to one day come back so we should be on the move, ready to go for whenever he comes back and until he does, active in the work that God has given us. That is the kind of community that Village Bible Church and every uh, church that wants to resemble the church of Pentecost needs to be. We need to live life together. We need to do the work of the Lord together. And we need to have the hopeful expectation of what Jesus has promised, I'm coming back soon. And when we experience that together, that is where the Holy Spirit shows up and fills a group of people in a way that can't be done just through us as individuals. He's about to change these 120. In fact, he's about to change the world. Notice the second characteristic that we see. They're all together. Chapter 2, verse 1 says they're all together in one place. Now notice chapter 2, we see life-giving power is given to this church, to these people. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's stop there. So here we have now Pentecost taking place. The coming of the Holy Spirit. 
we see that they are all sitting in one place. They're either in the upper room or they're gathered wherever the 120 would fit, whether it was a temple room or, or a large home. 120 are there. They're waiting. And all of a sudden, without a moment's notice, something starts changing. A mighty noise like a rushing wind comes and what appears to be tongues of fire seem to be swirling about them over each of their heads. And what we have is what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has talked about this. Go back to chapter 1 of the book of Acts. He says in uh, in Acts 1, uh, 5, he says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And this gives us an idea. So Jesus uses the idea of baptism. Remember when Jesus was baptized, he goes down into the Jordan River and he's plunged into the water and then he's brought out. And so we get this picture of what Jesus' understanding of baptism. He says, listen, you're literally gonna be dunked into the Holy Spirit. And, And I want you to notice when you're dunked into water, there's not a part of you that stays dry, right? There's not a part of you that can escape uh, the invading of the water onto our bodies. Likewise, it is with the Holy Spirit. The person is baptized, he is plunged into the Spirit where there is not a part of you, there's not a segment, a fragment of you that isn't touched and changed by the invading work of the Holy Spirit. They're about to be baptized. Now, there's a lot of questions. Let me just stop here for a moment about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. There are churches in our uh, world that call themselves Pentecostal churches. They take their vision, their plan, their focus of church off of this very text. They want to be known as churches of the Pentecost. And they will say, and I disagree with them, that they will say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a subsequent uh, baptizing that happens after you're a believer. So you come to know Jesus as your Savior, and at some point later in your life, maybe because the Spirit's moving in a service, maybe because the Spirit's moving in your prayer life, a, a kind of a recharge takes place, a, a new baptism takes place that takes you kind of the ordinary believer or individual and turns you into something extraordinary, gives you gifts like the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy and all other ecstatic signs and wonders. What we would say is, listen, uh, we recognize and we respect that they have an opinion with regards to scriptures, but we don't see that in the book of Acts here. And while we appreciate them labeling themselves as a church of Pentecost, we see things a little differently. And so let me share with you where we are at on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the inauguration of the Christian life. It's the inauguration of the Christian life. As we inaugurate presidents to signify the beginning of their presidency on January 20th, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something for those who have somehow met or or hit a certain high in their Christian life. It is given to all. Paul says, were we not all, speaking of all Christians, baptized into the Holy Spirit, he tells the church at Corinth. And so we need to recognize this morning that if you have bowed the knee to Jesus 
and you have humbly confessed your sins to him, if you have invited him into your life and made him Lord and, and Savior of your life, then you have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. And you have been put as the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, that gift of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's not something you have to look for later. It is not a criteria by which you uh, have to do certain things. This is something that God does in the lives of his children, every one of them. And so if you are a true child of God, you have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. Now, notice Luke says a couple things about this baptism. He says, first of all, he tells us that they're sitting in one place. They're in this room and they're sitting. That's an important word. Because what I want you to know is that it does not say that they were doing a religious activity for the Spirit to come. They, the idea of sitting, uh, there were two postures for praying, either kneeling or standing in the times of the New Testament. Sitting was viewed as a time of casualness. It was a time where you were just doing the mundane things of life, whether you were uh, just enjoying hospitality with other guests in your home, uh, reclining and enjoying a meal. Those were the things that you sat for. When it was time to pray, you either got on your knees or you stood up and you prayed in a particular posture as we see when the poor man is in the temple praying and then the rich man who's the Pharisee stands up and prays. And so this is important because we need to recognize the Holy Spirit, as Jesus told Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit comes when he wants, he comes how he wants, and it is not something that we create it is not something that we get one of the uh, people on our worship team to get up and, and to play some, some music that just tears at our heartstrings and we get people riled up into an emotional fever and an emotional uh, excitement and, and that through you know maybe some great songs and repeating the same uh, chorus 4,372 times, we get to a place where we're crying and we're broken and something that's manipulated. These guys are sitting, enjoying life together, and boom, the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit does not come on an individual because we do something. The Holy Spirit comes because God has called him to. And so they're sitting. Now I want you to notice a couple of things. Notice the Holy Spirit is invisible and yet moving. Notice it says that they were together all in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a loud uh, sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So we are told it's not a wind, but it's the sound like a wind. And so they know something is happening. It is so loud that it not just fills the room, but we're gonna learn that people outside of the room are blown away by this sound, and they wanna know what this sound is all about. We are told this sound was like a mighty rushing wind. So, sound, you don't see sound. You can't see the sound of the words that are coming out of my mouth, which are being amplified by those speakers, but you can recognize that my voice is moving from here to there. And that's what we need to recognize about the Spirit. The Spirit is invisible. We cannot see him. He's an invisible person 
but he is a moving person, which means that he is moving, he is active, he is dynamic, and as a result of that, he is having an impact on who we are, not only through our senses, but going to the very heart of who we are as individuals. And so he's moving, he is filling the entire room. But notice then, we see that the Holy Spirit is an illuminating person. It tells us that tongues of fire began to appear to them. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. Luke is trying to explain what is transpiring. And have you ever been a part of something that is so great and so amazing that it's hard to put it into words? So Luke is seemingly struggling with what does this look like? And we don't know what it was, but it was an awesome pyrotechnic show. It fills the room with this sound, and while this sound is filling the room, now tongues of fire, little fires are now filling the room as well, but they are individual, and they find themselves resting on people. Now let's deal first of all with the issue of fire. And fire helps us in the coming of the Holy Spirit. The fire tells us, number one, it illuminates. So fire helps us to see. And what's going to transpire is the disciples are now going to see the world because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in a whole new way. The fire is going to allow them to see that which maybe was covered from them during the days walking and talking with Jesus. Even in chapter 1, they're still trying to figure out the program of God. When is the kingdom of God going to be established? When are we going to get our thrones? But now the Holy Spirit comes And he's going to give them a new view of things, a new illumination where they will see the world differently. Now, I want you to recognize when you came to know uh, Christ as your Savior, especially those who came to him as an adult, isn't it amazing how your view, your worldview changed when Christ came into your life through the indwelling Holy Spirit? That you saw things differently. Things that you used to say were fun now are sin. Things that you used to devote your time and attention to and thought that those were the right things, now you say, you know what? It would be far better if I devoted myself to these things over here. The Holy Spirit illuminates our lives. Notice it's also intense. Fire is an intense thing. Notice that the second use of fire is heat. It warms us. When we are cold, we stand near a fire. Our houses are warmed by contained fire that is then blown through the entire house. And so this fire that was being placed upon them is the fire of the Holy Spirit that would cause them to burn to fulfill the things of the Lord. Their passions were now changed. No longer were they trying to cover their own uh, hides, if you will, in denying Jesus. Now they were gonna go out because they saw the world in need of a savior and they weren't scared anymore of what the world was gonna say. They weren't scared about the trouble and the pain and the sorrow that the world may throw at them. Now they were so passionate that the consequences of them being obedient meant nothing to them. They wanted to share Jesus with the world. It was intense. And yes, the Holy Spirit should be causing an intensity within us, a fire within us, a passion within us that we see our neighbors differently, we see our coworkers differently, we see even strangers around us differently as people who need the gospel. 
That's why the Holy Spirit came. But I want you to know, while it came to a corporate group of people, that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was also for the individual. It rested on each one of them. So the Holy Spirit didn't fill this place. Let's say we're the 120 uh, in the second chapter of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes in, and, and we, just because of being in here, we get to experience, but that that tongues of fire and, and that spirit fell on maybe a handful of us, and you got to enjoy some of the leftovers of it. That's not what it says. It makes it clear that all that were in the room had tongues of fire rest upon each one of them. I want you to know this morning that if you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit by giving your life to Jesus, don't think that by osmosis you've gotten it from your spouse or your parents or your friends or your pastor. The indwelling Holy Spirit is something that must dwell in each and every one of us. And we need to make that decision. Are we going to ask for the coming of the Holy Spirit in our lives in asking for forgiveness of our sins and asking for Christ to be our Lord and Savior? Or will we continue in our rebellion to go our own way? It is an individual moving of the Spirit. So the Spirit now is in the place. He's entered the house. Now this leads to a presence in their life that is going to change them. Notice the awe-inspiring presence that comes. Oh, to be a fly on that wall, to see what was going on. So many of us want to experience that. We want the ecstatic. We want the signs and wonders. Uh, We want uh, all of that to be here, and some of us yearn for that this morning. But I want you to know that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit within us, And it isn't the Holy Spirit that's letting us down, but sadly it is us that is letting him down. And so here the Holy Spirit now is going to cause us, he's going to affect us in a new way. We're gonna be changed. And notice how the disciples are changed. Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life, we notice things will change. Well, notice a couple things. First of all, as a way of clarification, so nobody wonders about this, I want you to recognize, to experience that awe-inspiring presence doesn't mean it is found in a holy place, but it's found in a humble person. Listen, we don't have to go find that room in Jerusalem. We don't have to make a pilgrimage to that room to find the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go and get on planes and, and make all sorts of travel plans to hopefully get to the place where the Holy Spirit was. That's what the Jewish people did before Christ came. But now through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the holy place is not somewhere where we are not, but that holy place is in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it is the temple of a humble person who gives their life to Jesus where the Holy Spirit is. We don't have to go looking. We don't have to go searching. That Holy Spirit indwells us. And when it indwells us, some things take place. Notice what happens. It propels, I'm sorry, it places a fire within each of us. Let's start there. It places a fire within each of us. People ask, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? Paul says, 
it will bear witness to the fact that he's there. How does the Holy Spirit bear witness in our life? Let me ask you a couple questions. Do you have a fire for the things of the Lord? Do you long for the things of the Lord? Do you long to serve him? Do you long to use the gifts that he's given to serve him in the ways that he's called you to? Uh, Let me ask you this question. Do you want to be like Jesus? The Holy Spirit illuminates the work of Jesus and it causes us to want to be like Jesus. Him. And if we don't want to be like Jesus, if we don't even think about maybe being like Jesus, then the question is, do we have the indwelling Holy Spirit in us? Now, there will be rises and falls to that. There will be times where we grieve the Holy Spirit. There will be times where we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. But can you see as, as a pattern in your life, I long to be like Jesus, I long to serve Jesus, and I want to do what Jesus says, and I want to live my life in obedience to all that Jesus has called me to. If you can see that fire, then you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you don't, then maybe there's some work that needs to be done. Either an initial work of being saved or some confession of sin where you have grieved the Holy Spirit and now getting right in fellowship with God is the name of the game. Confessing your sin and asking for him to be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Notice the Holy Spirit will do something else. It will propel us into the world, not out of it. So here the 120 are up in the room, and they're gathered together, and this great thing thing happens. And I wonder if some of them said, let's just keep it here, us 120 and no more, right? Let's just enjoy this. We don't have to go tell others about it because if we do, then it's going to change and it's not going to be so much fun. And and let's just enjoy the aura of what's transpired. But notice in verse 5 that God causes them to have to go out. They can't stay in the upper room. Why? Because now they're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and this sound, the, at this sound, the multitude came together and were bewildered. They heard the sound. They didn't experience everything that the disciples had, but there was enough that now the multitude wanted to know, what's up with you guys? What's happening? And so now they've gotta go and tell their story. I want you to know that the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you in such a way that at some point you're going to have to give an account of why you are the way you are. And the question is, will you rebel against him in that moment and be like the disciples before the coming of the Holy Spirit where they uh, cover their own hide? Or will you be being filled with the Holy Spirit, tell of the good news and the great story of what Christ has done, the Apostles are going to choose the latter, not the former. They're going to tell. Why? Because Jesus, through his spirit, is going to propel them out in the world. Here's the crazy thing. Jesus tells them, you will be my witnesses. And I want you to notice, they don't choose the timing of their witness. God did. And some of you are saying, you know what, today's a good day for me to witness, to reach out. And I want you to know, God chooses the opportunities. God chooses the moments. God chooses the people of which he wants you to share the good news. God sees the multitude of people, devout Jews in Jerusalem, thousands that are there for the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. And Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, says, now is the time. You're going to go share. You're going to be my witnesses in this moment. 
He's going to propel us out into the world, not keep us from it. Notice, finally, he's going to push us out of our comfort zones. The last thing that the apostles and the disciples and followers of Jesus want to do is go public. Fifty days before, they're watching their leader get hung on a cross. The last thing they want to do is go mess with the Pharisees. The last thing they want to do is go and make a public proclamation about who Jesus is. Remember, Peter, who we're going to see, stands up next week and announces to the church, this is what's going on, is going to uh, not be the one that he was before, 50 days before, where he's hiding and he's running and he's swearing to even a young little girl that he's not a disciple of Jesus. Now he's gonna stand before thousands and proclaim the message that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. And he's going to, in fact, say, it is you with the help of evil men who put him to death. And so this comfort zone is gonna change us. Listen, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're gonna be asked to do things that we're not altogether comfortable with. And, and we need to be obedient in that moment. There'll be times that our popularity may take a fall. There may be times where we may lose friends over it because we need to take a stand that the Holy Spirit is calling us to stand for. It's gonna push us out of our comfort zone. And when we are pushed out of our comfort zone, it's gonna cause us to pursue some gospel-spreading pursuits. Some gospel-spreading pursuits. Notice what happens. We see now that they are out in the community. And what's happening? They're bewildered because each of these people in the multitude of people that are visiting Jerusalem are starting to hear these guys speak in their own language. Now that is a big deal because notice in verse nine all of the different places that are mentioned. All of them having their own dialect. All of them having their own accents. All of them having their own idioms. All of them having their own languages. And they're seeing a group of Galileans who only know the speech of Galilee, Hebrew and Aramaic, now speaking in languages that they know they don't know. These are new languages for these people from Galilee. Now notice what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit causes us and moves us to spread the gospel. And notice how this gospel is spread. It spans... It spans all lifestyles. One of the things that we see in the record of all the different places, no doubt, are not only people from different cultures and backgrounds, but no doubt people of all different kinds of places in life. And the gospel, the Holy Spirit sends us out to the gospel not to just talk to people like us, not just to talk to the 41-year-olds, if you're me, in the world, not to just talk to the dads of the world, not to just talk to the self-employed or to the pastors of the world, but the gospel sends us out to talk to people of all lifestyles, whether we think they're gonna believe or not. Notice that the gospel should be spread to all locations. And so notice all the different places that are mentioned, more than 15 locations are described they're all different. Some are big, some are small. Some had the same God, others had different gods. Some were rich places, some were poor places. Some were places filled with all kinds of debauchery and sin. Others were filled with maybe more devotion to the God of the universe. They're all different. 
And we are being told that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that we are to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And God says, let me give you a head start. I'll bring the world to you. And listen, today more than ever before, the world is coming to us. And we need to share the good news and spread the gospel to all locations. That's why we have a missions program. That's why we go on short-term mission trips, to go to locations where God isn't being worshipped. And so we witness and we send missionaries to tell of the good news for every lifestyle, every location, and notice every language. They're speaking a different language, each of them. Now, I want to be careful again because this is where our friends, the Pentecostals, will say, here is where we get the gift of tongues. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on on what uh, tongues are in the charismatic and Pentecostal movement. Tongues are not languages, but they are ecstatic utterances where individuals say they are speaking a heavenly language. This is not what's happening in Acts chapter 2. What is happening is, is Tim is now speaking French. Tim is now speaking Spanish. Tim is now speaking German, Swahili, Chinese, Mandarin, all the different languages of the world, all those represented there that day were hearing the gospel in their own language. Is that still going on today? If God wants it to, then it should be. God can use people and use languages in that way. I want you to notice this is a reversal of the Tower of Babel where God confuses the language for the sake of the gospel. He now is bringing a miracle that the languages can be understood. And so these Galileans who didn't know a lick of any of the languages of the places represented now with perfect uh, utterance are able to speak the language so that people can hear it. Why? So that those people now can go and tell the story of Jesus to the world. These are languages. These are known languages to the people who were hearing. And it was languages that the Galileans didn't know. This tells us, listen, that the gospel is the greatest change agent within the world. And that this gospel can impact people from all lifestyles, all locations, and all languages because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what it's going to do is it's going to spur all kinds of responses. And we're going to get to this more in the weeks to come. And we're going to see wherever the Spirit falls, it doesn't mean, and we get frustrated about this, because we feel like the Holy Spirit has led us somewhere to share the good news with a neighbor or a friend. And we feel the moving of the Spirit to do so. And we tell the person the gospel. We share the good news with them. And they're like, you believe this? hey, you're crazy. And you're like, but in the book of Acts, everybody believed. No, they didn't. Write these things down. As the Spirit moves, as they tell the mighty works of God, verse 11 says, notice, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're just drunk. They're filled with new wine. Notice that when we share the gospel and we tell the good news of the filling of the Holy Spirit in us and how it's changed us, there are three responses. Number one, there will be those who marvel, there will be those who misunderstand, and there will be those who mock. And I'm going to tell you that either you've experienced that in the past or you will experience it in the future, and that's okay. 
The Holy Spirit will change lives. He's changed ours. But there will be people like, I don't get it, dude. Why do you believe that? How can you believe that? And then there will be others who will say, you're just drunk. You've lost your mind. You're filled with something. You need help. And we need to recognize this morning that the filling of the Holy Spirit is not so spectacular and amazing that people can't talk it or explain it away. It's an invisible, moving person who has impacted our lives through illumination, through intensity, and has impacted us as individuals so that we will go out and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. So my question is this morning as we close, is that what is characterized of this church? Are we a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit? Are we filled with the Holy Spirit that when we gather together, we are so energized and so excited about what we've experienced that we go out in the world and tell people of the good news of Jesus Christ, totally being okay if some marvel, if some misunderstand, and even if some mock, we're okay with that because we've been commanded by our Lord and Savior to be his witnesses throughout all the world. Does it cause us to look at every person as an opportunity for them to be sought and found by Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Is that the kind of church we are? And here's the thing. The church collectively is made up of people, and we will only be as strong as the weakest person in here. And so each of us needs to ask the question this morning, as Pastor Steve talked about last week, am I being filled with the Holy Spirit? Am I living my life in accordance with him? Am I receiving all that he has for me? Or is sin and preferences and my own selfish desires keeping me from that? If it is, let us ask the Lord for forgiveness. And let us ask the Lord to fill us anew with his spirit so that we may walk in accordance with him. And by God's grace and mercy that we might see some of the life change that was seen on the day of Pentecost.